Hi, everyone. Welcome back. It's time for another episode of Pep Talk, AASA's Education Policy Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Noelle Ellerson Ng, and I am AASA's Associate Executive Director for Policy and Advocacy. If it's your first time joining us, thanks for tuning in. Here at Pep Talk, we cover all things that could be remotely labeled as education policy. All shows are available for download under the Pep Talk landing page on the AASA website. Looking ahead, if you have a show idea or a guest you think we should have on, shoot me a note at nellerson at aasa.org or on Twitter at noellerson. Our latest episode, which you'll hear next, is Liz Scott Sargrad, Vice President of K-12 Education Policy at Center for American Progress. Prior to joining CAP, Scott served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Elementary and Secondary Education at the U.S. Department of Education under then-Education Secretary Arnie Duncan, as well as the Acting Director of the Office of School Turnarounds. He joined the department in 2009 as a Presidential Management Fellow in the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitative Services, and also worked as a Senior Policy Advisor in the Office of Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development. Previously, Scott taught mathematics, coached cross-country and track and field, and was a special education instructional assistant. I enjoyed this conversation with Scott as he's been a longtime colleague and advocate for public education, for sound, smart public policy and equity. I appreciated the opportunity to highlight the work of CAP to discuss the work they have going on and to see what they have on the horizon as it relates to federal and state policy public education, and their broader policy arena. Thank you for listening. Scott Sargrad is the VP of K-12 Education Policy at the Center for American Progress, or CAP. In this role, he coordinates and oversees the organization's K-12 education portfolio, including research, analysis, policy, and public education events. Scott, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So I'm going to dig right in because I know the number of questions that I sent you and I know the amount of information that you stand to share with our listeners. So the Center for American Progress is always running about a dozen projects at a time and burning all of those candles at both ends. So I'm doubly appreciative of you taking the time to sit down and talk with us today. For our listeners, can you start by sharing your elevator speech on who CAP is? why the group was started, and what you're working on. And that last one, I actually want to have you answer it at two levels, CAP in general, and then CAP specific to education, because it's a group that focuses on broad areas of policy, not just education. Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the interesting things about CAP, and one of the reasons I like how what I do every day is we're a progressive policy institute, you know, a think tank based here in D.C. that uh, focuses on all kinds of different public policy issues, you know, everything from K-12 education and post-secondary education and early childhood education to immigration policy and healthcare and economic policy and LGBTQ issues and race and, race and ethnicity issues. So it's a exciting place that covers almost anything you could think of. And so like you said, at any one time, our K-12 education team is working on a number of different projects, but across the institution, we're working on lots of different things. So it's a, it's a fun place to learn from a lot of really smart folks. And, and our kind of main mission is really to, uh, on the K-12 team, 
promote and develop and defend progressive policies that are going to help all students fulfill their potential and with a particular focus on the impact on underserved students. So we want students to attend schools that are uniformly excellent and help to level the playing field. And that's kind of broadly what CAP is trying to do is kind of create the, the policy environment for all Americans to uh, climb the ladder of opportunity and develop those, those progressive policy ideas. So we have that general lens, and so the listeners have that general lens. I've known you most of my time at AASA, and that's coming up on 12 years. We crossed cross paths first when you were at the Department of Ed, and my, my team has lots of overlap with your team at CAP, including the people that you work with, but a lot of the research and policy analysis that you put out. So I went to your website, and the official description of CAP is that you're an independent, nonpartisan policy institute dedicated to improving the lives of all Americans. So I want to dig into our little education lane and ask you to expound on how CAP's work specific to education helps shape and craft the broader policy agenda. And then I have some follow-up questions, but if you could start there, how does CAP's specific education work help to shape and craft a broader policy agenda? So I think it's a, a couple of things. I mean, we work on a number of different education issues. So everything from thinking about uh, teacher pipeline policies and whether that's how to pay teachers like professionals or um, improve teacher preparation and induction programs. And, and then we also think about pathways to college and the workforce in the K-12 and particularly the high school system. We think about how you encourage innovation at the K-12 level in lots of different ways. So we try to respond to what's happening in the in the world, in the education world, in the broader world, and provide research and policy analysis and policy ideas that are going to be helpful to folks at the federal and state level. So, and that's one thing that we really try to focus on is what's going to be useful to, to policymakers and what's going to help them do their jobs and from our standpoint, help them craft progressive policies that are going to improve the lives of kids. So we have kind of historically done most of our work at the federal or the national level and that's why CAP was founded really back in, in 2003 is to be a, a progressive voice for, for federal policy. Um, but we've moved quite a bit to doing more state-focused work and partially because that's where uh, the uh, all the control of K-12 education is, at the, not just the state level, but the local level too. Um, and also because of the environment we're in right now in Washington, D.C., uh, is not as conducive to big federal policy ideas. So we try to work directly with, with some state policymakers, state lawmakers, governors, folks like that, about what their what their agenda is, what they're trying to accomplish, and, and figure out how our, our work can, can fit with what they're doing. Well, and we're going to get to some of that later, so don't get to some of these questions you already know I'm going to ask. <laughs> I actually want to go back to something, one of the questions that I didn't send you ahead of time. So when AASA works with CAP, we are in coalitions with you, and we use your research and we'll use your data, but I don't think I see CAP doing advocacy the way AASA does advocacy. Does CAP do explicit lobbying, or are you more information sharing? We do a, a little bit of lobbying, um, but it's mostly information sharing. So we have our our ideas, we do our analysis, we publish them, and we 
love to meet with anybody who wants to meet with us on them. We, we put them out there so we can get those ideas into the kind of policy bloodstream. And we do have a, a fairly robust kind of communications and advocacy uh, infrastructure, but it's less of the uh, traditional lobbying and more mm -hmm. of, of press uh, communications and in-state work and, and things like that. So we definitely try to get our ideas into the hands of policymakers, but it can look uh, different ways. And it's often not about a specific legislation. So frequently it's, we'll come up with an idea, we'll do some research and we'll want to, to talk with lawmakers about that and we'll, we'll present our ideas and, and offer suggestions for how they might take that and, and use it in their context. And, and to our listeners tuning in, I think the question that I just asked and the answer that you just gave might sound like, well, you're lobbying, but not quite. And I think one of the good ways to clarify that difference is CAP is a group that has an overall approach. They want to make lives better for people. And in our little education lane here, Scott's talking consistently about ensuring better educational opportunity for, for all students is a, one way to think of it. But instead of lobbying specific legislation or pushing specific legislation like we do at AASA, we will take a position on, yes, no, this bill, not that bill. It has to be this way. It can't be that way. CAP does more of a big picture item. We want teacher salaries to be raised. And then you'll have the data and research to support that. And you will share it widely. And really what you're relying on is that other groups who do more explicit lobbying will use your research and find it helpful. And I, I think that's another way to help our listeners distinguish what might be a subtle nuance to them. Is there really a difference between lobbying and not lobbying if you are still trying to achieve an outcome? And it does matter. There is a difference here. But would, did I capture that subtlety correctly? Yeah, that's a great way of explaining it. We really do try to um, get get ideas into into the hands of policymakers. And a good example is uh, you mentioned teacher pay. We did a report last year that um, looked at uh, the issue of teacher pay, and we had an idea for a $10,000 federal tax credit for teachers who are teaching in schools serving students from low-income families. Uh, and we would love for folks to pick up that very specific idea and, and introduce legislation. Um, but you know, there are lots of other ways to, to pay teachers more and to focus the, those resources on uh, the students who need them the most. So uh, we aren't sort of, uh, too wedded to any, any particular uh, policy mechanism, I guess I would say, just, just the way you were describing it. Well, and just like you're not wedded to one specific policy mechanism, something you hinted at a few minutes ago is that when CAP was created, I think you said in 03, 09, when was CAP? Uh, 2003, we were created. 2003. It was really created to drive a dialogue at the federal level, but you have found yourselves, for two very good reasons, doing more in the state space. Still the same model where you're not pushing an explicit legislative priority, but helping to guide discussions for outcomes. Can you talk about what that shift to the state level has been? And you said it was for two reasons. One, there's not a, a stomach right now in the current environment for a large federal footprint in education. And two, even if there were a larger role for the federal government, the state is still driving almost every vehicle in the education lane. So can you talk to us about what that shift has looked like to where you are now moving a single policy, which could be teacher pay, and how it could get traction at the federal level and the state level and how CAP can support that? I think it's it's both 
challenging and exciting in a lot of ways. I think it's it's challenging because you know we're a DC-based organization. We're close to Capitol Hill. We're close to the White House. Um, we have a lot of relationships there. A lot of folks um, at CAP come out of administrations or the legislative branch, uh, like me. I was in the administration before this, and so we have know how we know how that works. Um, and we have kind of fewer relationships at the state level. There are obviously 50 states, so it's harder to have uh, strong relationships at, at every one. But we've really tried to build that uh, infrastructure here at CAP over the, the past few years. And it's uh, it's been exciting because there is a lot of variety in what states are thinking about and a lot of different contexts that it's, it's kind of fun to, to work with people in, in different states at different uh, places with uh, with different things that they're focused on and different approaches to some of the same issues. So, you uh, know, things like, like whether it's teacher pay or school infrastructure or um, high schools, and there are some of the same sort of fundamental issues, but they, they play out in really different ways. So it's, it's exciting to uh, dig into some of those, those unique contexts and figure out what the best solution might be for um, a, a new governor or a, a state legislator that's interested in this. Well, that's something we've enjoyed here at AASA. We've relied on CAP for some of the data that will support the things we're trying to do federally. But then we see some of these reports with growing frequency coming out of CAP that can support state-level policies, and we are happy to share with our state executives and their associations this resource that can then help them at the state policy arena. And I know they're always welcoming information and research and data that can help them. So it's been a, a nice one-two combo to share you guys with them. So we've now talked about the general framing of CAP, but you've been a little busy over there writing some papers, Scott. You're not just <laughs> talking education policy. And in our back and forth and prepping for today's podcast recording, you shared with me some of your latest goings on, all of which we had skimmed or consumed or used here at AASA. But I want to walk through five of them. And I want to start with one that came out last year on fixing chronic disinvestment. And for our listeners, I will try really hard to remember to link to all of the five documents, the five reports that we're going to talk about in this next section. They're worth your review. They're worth your read. But as I revisited this paper in preparation for this podcast, Scott, I got really frustrated at how much this paper was a, well, yeah, kind of commentary <laughs> on the idea that it's pretty obvious. But then I was disappointed because even though it's obvious, it still needed to be written. It's still relevant. When you write papers like this, Scott, and you have to include sentences that say, states with larger recessionary budget cuts experienced a decline in testing and student achievement, or there are large differences among states in educational spending and quality, with the highest performing states tending to have high spending. One, how do you not bang your head against a wall? But how do you... <laughs> How can you change a dialogue that we've been having for years? How can a paper like this be a value add? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it's something that uh, is is frustrating you know, from from our end too. The fact that we we do have to write this paper that is yes, uh, it does matter when uh, states cut funding for education, and it does matter when states spend more. Uh, but I think it's a, it's an important shift in the debate on some of this because I think at, we at CAP, we as progressives have for a long time been on the defense around things like investment in education. So a lot of um, talk about how money doesn't really matter. It's all about 
how you use those resources. There's no good evidence saying that if you spend more, you're going to get better outcomes. And so we haven't been able to push for increased investment. And I think that's one of the reasons why you saw such massive budget cuts following the Great Recession, and uh, even more so in states that once the recession mostly ended and they had higher tax revenues, they cut taxes instead of investing in things like education. So um, we really haven't been able to push for this, this increased investment for a long time, but now I think you're seeing some of the really clear results of that disinvestment with the, the teacher strikes and walkouts over the past two years and with uh, crumbling schools and outdated textbooks. And you're also seeing more really good research evidence about the actual impact of money in education, and that it really does matter when you spend more, particularly for students from lower income families, and, and you do get better outcomes, regardless of what the money is spent on. So I think it's one of those things that's important to keep talking about, and it, it can be frustrating to, to feel like you're just saying things that should mm -hmm. be obvious, but uh, changing that that conversation, I think, is really important. So one thing I liked about this report is that it wasn't data cap collected. Rather, you aggregated from multiple sources and were able to weave together this common narrative. The idea that this isn't just a single-time disinvestment. This is a chronic disinvestment. And you, by relying on data from multiple sources, it becomes less of a single source issue. So everything we learned in How to Write a Paper 101, right, multiple sources citing common or repetitive conclusions gives you some level of higher validity. So we now have this cap paper with multiple sets of data and multiple resources talking about this need to invest in education. So how do policymakers look at this proposal, this, this paper that you have out? And I want you to answer in two specific contexts. How does a Kamala Harris or a Patty Murray look at a paper like this versus a Senator Enzi, chairman of the Senate Budget Committee that last week passed a budget that capped all funding at post-sequester levels. So how does a, a policymaker look at a paper like what, what we're talking about? So I think um, one thing is folks like, like a Kamala Harris or a Patty Murray who are um, more more predisposed to want to invest more in in education so they can use it as um, some some fodder for their arguments that yes it's not just that we think schools should get more money because that's a, a value statement we have which you know, is one of the values that i think uh, we we have as progressives but uh, you can also say no it really matters for all the things that we as Americans should care about, which is, are you creating a pathways to opportunity for people? Are you improving results for kids? Are you uh, preparing people for the, the future economy? Those, those things matter, and when you have some evidence that increasing spending can, can add to those outcomes, then it's, it's just an easier argument to make um, for, for folks who already want to make that argument. And then I think on the other side, you know, it's a, a warning for what happens when you do disinvest. And I think it, one of the things that's been nice really over the past few years is that at the federal level, you haven't seen much appetite for the massive budget cuts that the Trump administration has proposed. And I think in a bipartisan way, Congress has said, no, we do need to fund education. And they're not increasing funding maybe in the way that uh, some of us would like, but at least they're, they're recognizing the importance of, of maintaining some level of, of federal involvement there. So then, if we have these policymakers receiving it this way, one of the things that struck me in the paper is the parallel between the conversation in the paper and how policies make it, policymakers perceive it, 
and I saw a parallel between the push to reauthorize No Child Left Behind into what became the Every Student Succeeds Act. Could this paper be a starting point, or maybe not a starting point, but a catalyst where we really see a groundswell in support from the grassroots to exert pressure on their policymakers at the state and federal level that they need to fix this. So when No Child Left Behind was broken, we really didn't get serious action on Capitol Hill until there was a really constant drumbeat that the law was broken outdated, broken and outdated. And essentially that gave Congress the cover they needed to make the changes that became law. Could this paper be a turning point or a catalyst towards getting more traction in getting state and federal people to invest in the Hill, but then becoming immediately more cynical when they say, when they, the voters say they want to see this funding increase and they give the cover to their elected officials to make those changes, making sure that these voters or constituents then don't vote those people out of office when a tax increase comes or when they see that something else had to be cut. Like, what's the role of a cap paper in, in maybe being that catalyst, but also helping to ensure that people understand that there's long-term impacts when they push for these types of changes? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's tough. I, mean, I think we are seeing a lot at the, the grassroots level, at the, the state and local level, again, with some of the, the teacher walkouts, teacher strikes, the widespread protests against uh, the conditions that schools were in, in particular in places like Oklahoma and Arizona. And so that kind of pressure, like you said, is really important. And maybe maybe some of that can be brought to bear at the federal level, too, you know, people start to realize that the federal government really isn't meeting its commitments to, to support education for disadvantaged students. And, and I think one thing that we uh, can see, too, is as as parents, as teachers are, are standing up at the state level, at the local level, and, and protesting uh, the lack of investment, you're seeing changes. And you're seeing in places where they had the walkouts, uh, additional spending for, for education, uh, additional investments in teacher salaries. Um, but at the same time, you're you're right. Sometimes there's a, a bit of a backlash to that, and you know, not every place has had the the success in in raising uh, raising funds. So Colorado voters voted down a big uh, new investment in education just at the, in 2018 at the same time that other states were were approving those things. So it's a it's a real battle. In your last answer, you talked about how there's commonalities across states, but then. You also referenced teachers, and what I want to do is turn away from the chronic disinvestment paper, which is really worth a read, listeners, and it could be very compelling to you as you go through whatever is going on in your state legislature right now this year, but a specific issue of investment in education, which is this call to raise the salaries of teachers, and this one's fresh or hot or relevant because we've seen a lot of the teacher walkouts or the teacher strikes over what could be a prox uh, could be salary or it's a proxy for salary. They want broader investment in education, which can help with class size or other supports or other staffing modules. I want to open this question though with a direct quote from the paper. Americans across the country overwhelmingly support paying teachers as the professionals they are. According to a recent New York Times poll, Nearly three quarters of U.S. adults believe that teacher pay is too low, and two-thirds support increasing taxes to raise the salaries of public school teachers. Well, dang, a quote like that makes my little education geek heart go pitter-patter, pitter-patter. <laughs> my question to you, though, is do these 
U.S. adults vote for the budgets that increase teacher pay? Do they vote for the board members who will move budgets that increase teacher pay and boards that will hire superintendents that will support this adequate teacher pay? I see a strong parallel between this whole idea of the annual PDK poll where my school is good but the nation's schools are failing with this idea of I can agree to the idea of raising teacher pay and will even say that I support a tax increase until that policy is juxtaposed against a competing priority. So, I mean, how do we play that out? What What is the disconnect? Is it with the voters? Is it with the constituents? Is it with policymakers? Is it a combination of all of the above? Yeah, yeah, I think you're you're right that there is this parallel to my my neighborhood school is good and my kids' school is good, but everything else is not doing so well. And I think historically that that's why we haven't seen increases in teacher salaries. It's why teacher salaries haven't gone up nationally in a really long time. Um, but I think now you are starting to see some some differences, and I think the um, the numbers are starting to bear that out in these these states that had the the strikes and walkouts last year. You're seeing real increases in, in salaries in a lot of these places. And these are places that historically have had the lowest salaries. So I think people are, are starting to get fed up and they're, they're starting to uh, agree to support some of these, these tax increases. I think it's not gonna be easy. It's not gonna work every time, but I think it, we are in a different moment right now, which is, which is exciting. Let me burst that bubble, though, however exciting it may be. There was polling out just late last year about how parents are increasingly steering their children away from the teaching profession. So you think about this teacher shortage where we don't have enough teachers who aren't being paid. And it's not looking like we're doing anything to bolster the recruiting to the ranks of future teachers. So what is it about teaching as a profession? that gets it treated like a JV team member, where advanced credentialing, which is required to just do your entry-level teaching work, doesn't warrant the salary and respect of other similarly credentialed fields? And how much is that a part of the obstacle here for teacher pay? So is it as much pay as it is perception? And how do we balance the two? Yeah, I think this is a, a major, major problem, and I think you're identifying maybe one of the, the most fundamental issues facing education and improving our, our schools, which is we don't have a teaching profession that is a profession the same way the, the law or medicine or engineering or other, other professions are, are treated. And I think there's a, a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is the low pay. And it's hard to argue that teaching is a profession on par with with others when teachers make you know, a, a third as much as other college educated professionals. It's just not the way we uh, show value in, in this country. We show value by, by salary in a lot of places. And if we're not going to value teachers by how much we pay them, it's hard to make the argument that it's an important profession. So you know, some of that I think comes from uh, teaching historically being a female dominated profession uh, and not being seen as one that uh, high salaries were necessary. It's where women had to go if they wanted a job uh, back when um, the public school movement was first starting. And a lot of that that history is, is still there. So I think we really do need to, to change what what being a teacher means, what the profession looks like. And, and part of that starts with, with professional salaries. But if we want to push back and be really historically accurate, the first teaching jobs, the first teaching professionals that field was male until there was a push for public schools and we needed so many more teachers and the other jobs accepted men and the only people left to staff some of these positions were women. So 
Yes, public school education has predominantly remained female, but at its core, teaching started out as a male-centric field as well, correct? Yeah, that's right. If we go all the way, all the way back. Essentially, every profession was a male-centric field. And okay. I think I think you're you're right there. As public schools, like you said, the public school movement really expanded. We needed more teachers, and they, it really became to be a, a female-dominated profession. And that's I think had a, a lasting impact on how how we view it here in this country. So this is not a question I sent to you ahead of time, Scott, so our listeners know that this is an off-the-cuff question. How much of this is also the idea of, I went to school so I know what it takes, which is really a disconnect, because most of us have been to the doctors and we know what it takes. But how many of us outsource educating our children? I ask this question very sincerely. I'm a traditionally certified teacher with classroom experience, and I will not teach my kids, because that is hard work that I need to leave to the professionals in the classroom. So. How much of that is at play here as well? And what is that disconnect? Yes, you went to school, but that doesn't make you a teaching professional. So again, why do you defer to medical professionals in a way you don't defer to or trust or empower educational professionals? Yeah, I think some of it is the fact that everyone has experience in schools and everyone has a lot of experience in schools, right? They're at least 13 years of, of education and working with, with teachers, learning from teachers. And so uh, they associate teaching with the teachers they've had and that experience historically has been lower paid workers. So it's uh, something that maybe takes some, some time to change. And, and I think the, the other piece of it is, you know, the for really uh, unfortunate saying of those who can't do teach. You know, that's a real uh, view oh, in a lot of places. Yeah. Uh, and if we can't get past that, it's going to be hard to, to get to uh, a place where it's treated like a profession. You know, nobody says those who can't do doctor. So we, we really need to, to change the, the attitude towards teachers. I will just end on that note and say ditto 100%. Because I want to get to some of the other papers you shared with me, and you gave me a beautiful segue because you talked about how the overwhelming majority of Americans have lots of experience with education because they have 13 years in the public school system. So that segues beautifully into the third paper that you shared with me, one that Kat put out, I believe, last year or early this year called Are High School Diplomas Really a Ticket to College and Work? And a lot of this report centered on the reality of inequity and access to educational resources. And what I wanted to tee off with are the two questions that were at the core of this paper. Are high school graduation requirements for a standard non-advanced diploma aligned with requirements for admission to the state's public university system? And two, are those graduation requirements aligned with college and career readiness benchmarks and indicators of a well-rounded education? one that includes coursework and other educational experience in, among other topics, computer science, engineering, health, music, and technology. And from those questions, the paper goes on to highlight the discrepancies between states. But I want to get real about there's discrepancies not only between states, but discrepancies within states, within districts, and within schools when it comes to having students leave high school truly college-ready which we've also defined here at AASA as able to successfully engage in and complete entry-level college work with no remediation. So what do we even do with the depressing findings of this report, Scott? 
it's a, it's a good question because it was kind of a depressing report to write. You know, it, it it grew out of some work we had done on the cost of remediation in college, and we had found that uh, remedial coursework is costing students just in in course fees alone something like one and a half billion dollars a year. And so we wanted to know why why is this happening? Why do we have such a high rate of remediation? Why are students spending this kind of money? And one of the things we wanted to look at is, okay, well, are they leaving high school actually prepared for, for college level work? And we know the answer is generally no from remediation. And what we found is one of the reasons we think is that there's not a real consistent uh, requirement for what a high school diploma means and whether it is actually a level of preparation that would get you ready for, for college. And so we looked at all of the state's requirements for their standard high school diploma. And you know, in almost every state, you could complete the state's standard high school diploma, and you would not be eligible to get into your state public four-year higher education institution, which just seems crazy to us. If you were going can, to do- wait, Can you repeat that, Scott? Repeat that one finding again. In how many states? So in 46 of the 50 states, the standard high school diploma would not be enough to get you admitted to the state system of four-year higher education. That is mind-boggling. Uh, it, it is mind-boggling, and it really is a, an example of uh, the lack of alignment between our K-12 and post-secondary systems. And because in, in a lot of states, you know, it wasn't a, a huge difference. In some states, you, know, you didn't have to take the, the right number of years of math or of science or the right math courses, which is a pretty big disconnect. But in some places, it was, you know, you didn't have, the high school requirements were just off by the number of years of foreign language you had to take. It doesn't seem like it should be a big deal. And probably students who are going to go to college will have ended up taking what they need to take, but not every student. And it provides an additional advantage to students who have the kind of college counseling or supports at home that they need to understand that they're going to need these additional requirements. Well, and that's, the equity piece that CAP focuses on, or in this paper, it's not just about the diploma. The paper is actually about the inequity in access to educational resources, which could be the parents who can help you navigate whether or not, or the school counselor that can help you navigate whether or not what's being required of you gets you ready for what you want to do. And then even outside of just being able to identify if you have everything that you need, if you identify that you don't have what you need, which apparently is the case in 46 states, getting the resources to close that gap, whether that's just making sure you sign up for a different course or a different type of course, or you take an additional academic enrichment, either a program or a counseling or a, a tutoring outside of school, that's a huge equity issue at the center yeah. of this. That's exactly right. And when you have counselor ratios, student to counselor ratios that are in the hundreds, uh, it's really hard to make sure that every student is getting the access to supports that they need. And so that's why one of our key recommendations is that states really should just make the, the sort of college and career preparatory curriculum the standard for everyone. If you get a high school diploma in your state, you should be eligible to go to the four-year college if you want to do that. Uh, you should be eligible to uh, go into the, the workforce if you want to do that. You should be ready for an apprenticeship or ready for additional training. And, and that, that should be the, the expectation. And maybe not everybody's going to do both of those things, but they, all students should have that option.
And that's what everyone should aim for. And this is where, when I put our superintendent's hat on, this is where we start to get into some of the 2008 regulations around high school graduation rates because that is a really good standard. And that is that is what a diploma should get you. It should get you out of high school, but also demonstrate that you're ready for the next step, whatever your post-secondary opportunity is. But we need to be realistic. Not every child will either want to pursue that or maybe not every child will be able to achieve that. And so with my special educator hat on, we have some students for whom that might not be ultimately what they're able to accomplish. But that doesn't mean we don't make that the goal and scaffold on our way to there. Uh, better to have a higher standard than to water it down and have an artificially high rate of students who have a credential, but that credential doesn't carry water. Okay. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. One thing you said that I want to push back on is that this is something states can do. Totally agree that this is something states can do, but our listeners here at AASA are local superintendents. So what can superintendents do to address this in their district? Apart from the obvious thing of work with your state to ensure that your standards are aligned so that we're not one of the 46 states, make it make it meaningful, make it relevant, making make it something they can bite off and have a reasonable shot of doing this year with their board. What can a soup do? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are a couple of things. One is make sure that at a minimum, your district's high school diploma requirements match that college and career readiness set of courses. So most states allow districts to add on you know, beyond the statewide requirements. So districts should be be ensuring that for their diplomas, they're they're ensuring that that students have what they need to to be successful. Uh, and then I think the the other thing is making sure that there are resources like we were talking about for every student to access those courses that are going to prepare them for success. So that means thinking about your K through eight system. And if one of the things you want to make sure is that every student is completing, say, algebra two to graduate from high school, is that do you have the supports in place in K eight to get every eighth grader ready for algebra one? And exactly. So I think that that kind of work that superintendents can do is making sure that they have equitable access to all those kinds of opportunities uh, for every student in their district. Okay, so the soup does that at their local level this year with their board. What can the superintendent do with their state association? So this is like not quite state level, but what can superintendents do with their state association as a professional group to help nudge not only the collective work of what they might be doing locally, but to move the needle at the state level. Yeah, I think superintendents have a, a, a lot of power. You know, I think when they get together and they say, this is what we are doing for, for our kids, this is what we think everybody in the state should be doing, I think they can have, have real influence on what state lawmakers decide to do. And so if they say, no, this is the, the standard that we want to hold for, for our kids, and we think the, the state as a whole should, should get there too, I think that kind of uh, advocacy push can be really powerful. And I, I think they're not just on the requirements side, but on the the funding and resources side, kind of back to what we were, we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. I think none, none of these uh, resources and supports and whether it's of additional tutoring for kids who are falling behind, more counselors, they, they cost money and we, we should be uh, transparent about that. But that means that we need to advocate for the resources that are going to provide those, those types of supports. Well, and this goes back to something we talked about a few minutes ago. You need to remember when you go to the voting booth, what your superintendent did, what your state association did, what these members of your state legislature did. Maybe they frustrated you on one issue, but did they move the equity needle? Did they shore up the value of the high school diploma that your child is receiving? 
cover on courageous policy action happens not only when they take the vote, but when you vote to keep them in. And I think that becomes really, really critical, especially when we go into a 2020 election year, that your vote and your your voice carry a lot of weight and responsibility. So speaking of responsibility, though, one aspect of this, we've talked about getting K-12 graduates ready. There's a huge lap or overlap in the role for collaboration between K-12 and higher ed in addressing this readiness gap. Where are the areas? that K-12 and higher ed have mutual interests? And where are the areas in this discussion where it might not behoove them to work together? Yeah, I think the, this area of, of remediation and uh, preparation for students who are coming out of high school and entering into the post-secondary system is, is really critical because the remediation is a problem that uh, the K-12 system needs to address, but it's also an issue that the higher education system needs to address. And there are ways that those systems can work together to design the co-requisite classes, which are ways to get students in post-secondary the remediation they need while earning college credit at the same time. And so trying to develop those, those courses together and make sure that there are lots of ways to reduce the need for remediation. That costs colleges money, uh, it's bad for students, and we really do need to, to address that. Uh, it is a, a challenge to work, work across these systems, though. I, mean, we have, I think almost every state has some kind of you know, P through 16 council, P20 council that's supposed to coordinate across the, the various education systems. But I think in a lot of places, those don't function super well, um, or they just don't have the the authority to to push and make changes and you know pretty frequently the k-12 system lives under you know, the department of education in the state while the higher education system might live under a, a separate entity maybe it's a, a independent board or it's uh, controlled by the governor or by a, a different board of education so there can be real uh, real barriers to that coordination Barriers to coordination could be the byline to so many education policy issues, but <laughs> that's a separate book we're not going to write today. You've had some really good one-liners in here, Scott, and I wish I was taking notes, like writing them down. <laughs> so there's two more resources that you shared with me that I do want to make sure we touch on with our members, and these are definitely something I'm not as versed in, but I know our members and our listeners will care about since it hits closer to home. What do our members need to know about the two more state-centric papers that you shared with me, 11 Ways New Governors Can Lead Executive Action, and Great Education Policy Ideas for Progressives. Two caveats I need to put into here. I'm pretty sure your 11 Ways document could just be 11 Ways Governors Can Lead Executive Actions in Education. You don't have to be a new governor for those two. That's true. <laughs> and second, you shared with me the Great Education Policy Ideas for Progressives. AASA supports and endorses all candidates and all policies. We are nonpartisan or bipartisan. You just happen to share one that's focused on progressives. Uh, so with those caveats, uh, what do our members need to know about those two resources that Cap put out? So these were kind of fun ones for us. <laughs> we do a lot of you know, big analysis, like the a high school report we talked about was a 50-state analysis looking at all kinds of state policies and finding some pretty depressing things and trying to figure out ways to fix those. What these two papers were about were really trying to come up with some newer and exciting and interesting ideas that uh, whether it's governors or uh, lawmakers at all kinds of levels could pick up and run with and try to get some excitement around education. So the governor's piece, and we saw in the the 2018 election cycle, a lot of talk about education and 
you know, partially because it's a, a bigger state issue than it is uh, a federal issue a lot of times, partially because of the uh, teacher walkouts and strikes, partially just because uh, of the, the levels of disinvestment you saw and the, the need for increasing investment. So we had a lot of new governors in particular who came into office uh, having campaigned on improving public education in their state. And so we wanted to offer them some uh, ideas for quick wins. You know, governors can take executive actions just like the president can. And so we had an assortment of ideas around lots of different uh, policy areas, everything from uh, school infrastructure and construction to uh, some of these college ready ideas to um, school safety to school climate and, and protecting the rights of all students. Lots of different things that, that governors could do pretty quickly uh, in their first days and weeks in office to show that they're serious about taking on uh, improving public education. And so that was kind of an exciting thing for us to do and I hope some, some governors, uh, new and old, pick up those ideas and, and use them to push uh, for public education in their state. Uh, and well, then the, oh, go ahead. No, no go ahead, go ahead. Uh, and then the uh, seven great education policy ideas paper was another one that you know we wanted to get away a little bit from some of the traditional education reform uh, policy ideas that we we have been working on other folks have been thinking about and wanted to try to come up with some kind of more concrete things you know things like every student should have free breakfast and lunch in school and we actually maybe we should just do that <laughs> that could be a, an important thing for uh, reducing stigma associated with some of the free and reduced lunch programs or just making sure that every kid uh, is able to learn because they're they're coming to school coming to class with uh, without being hungry and things like hiring far more uh, college college counselors and students and addressing the the Council ratio, uh, things that really can move the needle for students. They're evidence-based policies, but they're they're a little bit different than some of the things that we've been focused on in kind of the education reform world for a while. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't point out that while these papers seem to be written for state-level policy leaders, this could just as readily be 11 ways superintendents can lead executive actions or a great education policy ideas for superintendents that might look a little different, but those outcomes or those goals can absolutely be aimed for or targeted at the district level. It's not just something that has to take hold at the state level. I mean, leadership, that's what these two are about, leadership, whether it's at the state level or as our members might apply it to the local level. And that's something that was important to us, that these were going to be ideas that you know, they were, maybe they were focused at the state level, but they could be federal or national ideas. They could be state ideas. They could be local ideas. You can kind of scale them up or down depending on uh, where you sit. And they're, they're all things that we think are, are important for kids and important for schools. Okay, Scott, I made you work a lot in this podcast. I asked <laughs> you some pretty detailed questions about five different reports, which means you had to make sure you remembered details of all five of them. But I have some lighter questions that I've enjoyed asking our guests, and we've now entered that portion of the podcast. So my favorite question right now to ask all of my podcast guests who tend to skew towards edu-geeks just like me, what is your favorite edu-geek memory? Have you ever been more of a fan than an employee in a given meeting, event, or project? Uh, so this is a great question, and I I have two, if that's okay. Of course, the more the merrier. <laughs> uh, so they are, are both from my time at the Department of Education uh, when we were 
working on and then rolling out the NCLB waivers. Yeah, that was one of the, the things that I was heavily involved in, both in the development and then the implementation. And when we announced the, that we were going to offer these waivers, we had a big rollout event in the um, East Room of the uh, White House uh, with President Obama and a number of state and local leaders and members of Congress. And uh, it was just an, an incredibly exciting event. And it's hard to believe that there was really an, an event about uh, something that seemed as kind of uh, policy wonky as NCLB waivers with the President of the United States. So just being there with uh, all the other folks who had, had worked on that and seeing the uh, state and local uh, leaders, the teachers and the students who were, were there and were going to get some relief from, from No Child Left Behind and hopefully help them move towards a better system. That was that was really exciting. Um, and then I think the, the second one was also related to that probably, a, you know, six months or, uh, or so later, we were of, uh, doing updates on where things stood with what states had uh, applied for the, the waivers, which states were getting them, how do we think this was going to go. And uh, I got pulled into a meeting in the Roosevelt Room of the White House with uh, the Domestic Policy Council and with Secretary Duncan. And I sort of got, had to fill in for a, a little bit and got to sort of sit at the, at the table in the Roosevelt Room and present to the <laughs> head of the Domestic Policy Council about how things were going with the, the No Child Left Behind waivers. And that was one of those surreal moments where you know, it was probably not five years after I was a special ed paraprofessional in a high school outside of Philadelphia, and here I was sitting in the Roosevelt Room of the White House <laughs> talking about uh, these these big education issues. So it's uh, pretty amazing. And it wasn't just dress up, and it wasn't just pretend. That was your real life, and you were adulting that day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. No, I love hearing how my colleagues and friends what they edu geek out over. Okay. We wouldn't be doing our job spot if we were in D.C. in 2019 and didn't talk a little bit about what might be coming down the horizon. So a couple more questions for you. What do you expect in 2019 education and policy at the federal and state level? Um, so I think in terms of actual policy at the federal level, I do think we there's a pretty good chance we'll see a Higher Education Act reauthorization. And so at least something things start to finish. Well, I think <laughs> I was going to say at least something start to move. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. I think uh, Senator Alexander and Senator Murray they seem pretty serious about wanting uh, to do something, and I think you know as we saw with uh, ESSA, when those two really get serious, and they can they can make things happen. So you know it's obviously tough totally in a agree. big election year, but those are the the two people who could could really do it. So I think that's it's a real possibility. I think you're right to be somewhat skeptical that they'll get all the way over the finish line, but. And that seems to be the big, the big spot. And I think the other federal thing could be you know, a, a push on infrastructure. It's been kind of a, a running joke in, in D.C. about uh, infrastructure week kind of coming and going. And when are we actually going to do something on, on infrastructure? But, um, you know, uh, Carson Scott in the, in the House had a, a big bill on school construction and school infrastructure that you know, it would be great to see some, some movement on that as part of a, a big infrastructure push. So you never know. That could be something that is bipartisan and get some support. Well, I think all of the edu world agrees that if two people put their minds to something, HEA under Alexander and Murray is something that we could get behind and that would have real traction. There's outside variables like 
Betsy DeVos and regulatory proposal she's moved that could derail it. But people would get behind in with very deep sincerity a Murray Alexander push. So we'll see. As for infrastructure, they're going to need to pay for that. I, I'm not going to hold my breath on infrastructure. <laughs> I, I see that there will be activity, but maybe a floor vote in August as part of a broader package is what I'm hearing, but they're going to have to pay for that. So, okay. Yeah, that, that one is maybe even more challenging. <laughs> right, but we have to be optimistic or else we might go nuts in this job. So, <laughs> That's right. Okay, that was 2019, Scott. 2020 is going to be a big year. The election is sure to be all the news if it's not already. What role do you see for education in 2020? I think this is a tough one. I mean, education is not usually a big presidential election year issue. And I remember back in 2008, there was the big Ed in 08 campaign to try to make it sort of a top issue I for do. for yeah. folks, um, and that that didn't go so well. Uh, so I think there, it's it's hard to to make education a, a big issue. But I do think that you know people are candidates are going to be talking about the economy and uh, how they're going to, to create an economy that, that works for everyone and creates pathways to the middle class. And education is a core part of that. So I think you could see some some candidates uh, and and folks really talking about what what education means for, for economic development, for economic prosperity. So I, I see it coming in, in that way. And you know, with Kamala Harris's teacher pay proposal last week, you know, some of the candidates might might start talking about education. Talking about education and being an education candidate are two different things, but we can hope and we can try to follow. <laughs> and maybe, just maybe, I think the bigger success would be if we had an education-specific question in the debate, but we're going to have to wait till 2020 to see if that happens. That's right. We'll have to cross our fingers. <laughs> cross them all and hold them. We'll see. <laughs> Scott, I want to thank you for joining us today, for taking time out of your busy day to walk us through and spend a near, nearly a full hour going through the broad variety of education work. And I think what's really important to keep in mind is this is just the education sector of CAP's portfolio. You guys touch on a much broader, progressive, comprehensive agenda. And so it's definitely something worth perusing on the website. So thank you again, Scott, for taking time to join us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation. Really appreciate it. And for our listeners, as a reminder, you just listened to Scott Sargrad, who's the VP of K-12 Education Policy at the Center for American Progress. They are a progressive think tank policy group here in D.C. looking to support and advance policy that advances opportunity for all people. And we were focused on the education component. You can follow Scott on Twitter at the handle Scott Sargrad, S. C-O-T-T-S-A-R-G-R-A-D. Thanks for tuning in to this issue or edition of Pep Talk, the AASA Policy Podcast, and we look forward to you listening again.